Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories with Village Global. I'm here today with my friend and very special guest, Arjun Sethi. Arjun, welcome to the show. Good to see you, Eric, and thanks for having me. Arjun, you are a serial entrepreneur uh, and investor, uh, formerly founded MessageMe, a law apps, uh, was a partner at Social Capital, and now you are starting your own firm, uh, Tribe Capital. Why don't we talk a little bit about uh, what you're building at Tribe, what, what you set out to build, and what's the, the thesis behind what you're building? If you think about, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people have asked, hey, as an entrepreneur, why are you building a firm? Why are you deploying capital? And, you know, it goes back to what my founders and I, um, at Tribe have done for the past 10 years. So we've built products from scratch in consumer, in SaaS, invested in those categories. Uh, but when we did it, it was at a time that I think was fairly special. If you think about it post 2001, you get into the era of 2005 is where companies were leveraging their data to make better decisions. So one, one of the companies that people always remember is Zynga, obviously Facebook, which is they had these data science team and people that were um, kind of assigned in parallel with product managers and engineers to make decisions uh, and bespoke hypotheses around uh, what was happening in their products. I mean, in some cases, it's you know fairly behavioral, behavioral oriented. In some cases, it was paid acquisition, you know, customer acquisition, LTV, et cetera. And so in order to have done that, you would uh, build the right infrastructure. You would build the right set of teams. You'd have the right set of software and infrastructure that, that may be third party or you built internally. Um, and then you would make ideally better decisions with that. Yeah. And so we took a first principles approach to uh, how would you do that in venture capital? Um, and if you think about it, what you're doing is you're delivering capital at the early stage where um, you have a more active role in having the companies being built. And so how do you build context? Well, you could build context by having industry knowledge or sector specificity um, as an individual. Or you can say, well, what does what are all the common denominator, denominators you need in order to build a company? And how can you um, help companies step function? So what we did is that we felt we were the masters of product engineering and data science. And we would take the culmination of all of those three foundations and assess companies in that way. And we started that at our predecessor fund where, you know, a lot of credit goes to some of these frameworks that were built from my partner, Jonathan, at Facebook. And then he brought that when he came on to Social Capital, where we had unlocked um, data for our company after we invested. Over time, uh, we used our own softwares and tools to essentially ingest the data, um, store it, continue to analyze it. Uh, retrieve it as needed um, and get better and better at understanding our own companies and then providing that back to them. And then the next question you ask is, well, can you do that earlier and earlier in the life cycle of the company? And then can you do it earlier and earlier in the life cycle of when you meet them? And that's essentially what we set out to do. Um, we started productizing uh, learnings that we had on the data science side, and then we delivered it back to a company. Kind of, We call it the magic eight ball. It's, it's something that's been continued to evolve over the last six years, but we started it so long ago. Um, and then we continue to use it across multiple companies, multiple stages for better, or for worse. Yeah. Um, and then our frameworks just get, got better and better and better because the N number of companies that come onto uh, our platform or they meet with us, we are able to drive better results for them and in interpretations of how their company is performing. And so that really started out with Jonathan writing set of articles that were about growth accounting in a, in a quantitative way to measure product market fit. And, and I think what you've seen a lot in the Valley is everyone believes they have product market fit on the founder side. And everyone who's an investor qualitatively believes they know how to assess product market fit. Uh, and so what we wanted to do is take a first principles, building a product from scratch uh, approach to how do we deliver what it means to have product market fit um, so the line we use when we meet companies are we are investing in N of one outcomes. And in order to do that, we take a quantitative based approach to product market fit. And we deliver that by um, our magic eight ball over and over again. That helps you unlock the data that you have. So 
we can identify product market fit and we can help you amplify it. Right. And unpack more your, your N1 thesis as, as it relates to one event company. Like un- unpack what that means. Yeah. It's, it's, what it really means is that you have monopolistic tendencies in certain sectors. Um, and, and N of one company is essentially a company that's category defining or it could be the market itself. And you're able to slowly and slowly, uh, in some ways improve the category of what you're in because you can either take fragmented services and make into automated software or, um, you have a network effect for the company yeah. that you have and you're able to go into adjacent territories, um, at high velocity. Uh, so N of one companies really, you know, to us was a term that, you know, stemmed from our days in social gaming. Yeah. Social gaming was an, one of N companies that were fighting for it. And they, we all believed we could try to get to N of one outcomes by having a network effect or a conglomerate of customers in our, uh, in our products where we could move them from adjacent product to adjacent product. Didn't work out. Didn't work out for Zynga. Didn't work out for us, right. but we got far enough where we were one of N companies. And so our goal was to help identify companies get to N of one outcomes versus a one event company. Now, does that mean we don't invest in one event companies? No. It just means knowing where you are in the ecosystem, uh, knowing how to think about building your teams, your uh, Salesforce, your product, uh, just having a, a guide map of how to perform. So it's interesting. Yeah, there, there are markets that are winner take all, and then there are markets that are so big. You know, that does not a and one company, but the, the market share market is so big. Mm-hmm. What's different when you're building a company in an and one market versus a, versus a one event market? Yeah, I mean, no, I, I would actually say, you know, Uber and Lyft are N of one outcomes, um, because there's just two of them in the United States. But if I was to take a global perspective, then you could say there's lots of competitors all over the world and it's hard to compete, um, outside your geography. Um, you know, an N of one outcome company is Slack. An N of one outcome company is Facebook. An N of one co- uh, uh, outcome company for us is companies like Carta, where you see very clear signs of network effect. Very clear signs of adjacent territories that you can go to. And what I mean by very clear signs of network effect is that you can quantitatively measure that this company is eating everyone else in, in its way. Um, so that's, that's for us is, you know, special circumstances of when we feel like there's an N of one company. Let's, let's cover a couple of those stories. So tell us the Slack story and, and what we can learn as investors or entrepreneurs about that company's rise. I mean, I'm, there's so many narratives about Slack. When we first invested in Slack, it was through our partner, Ted and, uh, at Social Capital, and he had known, uh, the team through, uh, a company called Cozy that they were both on the board of together. And, uh, obviously Slack had gone through a pivot. They were previously a game company and they had used some of these tools and communication, uh, paradigms to communicate with not just each other, but a way in which they thought, um, would be the right way to, to build communication. And so the early companies that they used this on, and they tested with one of them was cozy and the way in which uh ted got board updates was through slack right and he got uh information so his context in the company was rising so for him it was really valuable um and what i think what's really important here is at that time you know a lot of investors look at companies they think of it as tired or they've raised too much money um they were a game company before they can't be an enterprise company they don't it's like it doesn't fit their mold of uh, or their biases of how a company should be built in a sector. And we took the bottoms-up approach. The bottoms-up approach was, well, let's see how they perform. Let's see the demand signals that make sense for this company, given that there was barely any revenue um, and engagement was there and, you know, a couple of customers. And uh, the team at Social Capital really dug in deep and assessed the data. Uh, what's more important is that we continue to assess the data of the company across multiple stages of investments, not during, not just during the series A. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people say, Hey, you can't really assess companies at the series A. Well, if you think about it today at a series A, when someone's trying to raise between five and $10 million, um, they have raised some seed capital, you know, let's just say between 500 K and 3 million. If, if you, if you think about that wide range and they've probably had their product out at the, at the minimum three months, and up to 15 to 18 months in some cases where they are testing and iterating. Well, that's a plethora of data to look through to see how it's been performing. Um, and it's always shades of gray. It's never perfect. There's no company where you look at their data, um, their primary data. And I think this is the important part. This is not something that they provide to us in a deck. Um, we're ingesting it and then we are assessing and analyzing it and then giving it back to them. Uh, there, there are multiple ways in which you can kind of approach 
the market, or, you know, B2B SaaS topped out mid-market, small to medium, consumer subscription, um, uh, even consumer enterprise, B2B to B2C in some cases when you think about energy. So there are multiple frameworks that you can use and um, there are multiple ways in which you can, you know, essentially assess how is this company doing? Uh, where was it before? Where is it today? And what will it take for them to scale from a venture scale outcome? I think what happens is a lot of people just see a number and they get excited. And in some cases, they've already made the decision and then they try to back it up with data versus the other way around. And so our whole goal is to flip the coin on its head. When we meet entrepreneurs, we tell them, don't pitch us, we'll pitch you, give us access to your data and we will run uh, our analysis on you. We'll yeah. give you the magic eight ball back and we will show what kind of value that we can add. So we look more like a data and analytics system, but with consultants on top of it. Right. So it's kind of like the McKinsey way of understanding what it means to be in venture. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about a few of those frameworks. So when you get the data for, let's say, a consumer social company, what data is most uh, important for you in terms of uh, what will you know, determine whether you're likely to invest? Yeah. So a lot of this is also just secret sauce. And some of this we've put out, uh, you know, Jonathan has published this around, you know, just demand signals that we care about. Uh, but there's no right or wrong answer. And I think this is part of the key. Right, some people will say, oh, you need to have really great retention. Well, you can have really great retention, but you can have no net expansion of growth. That's not a company you want to invest in. Um, you can have high growth, no retention. That's not a company you want to invest in. So there's a lot, there's a lot of pieces that you care about. I think it's more, a lot of these frameworks exist on how to assess it. That's, that's not a secret. It's just more about the interpretation of how do you get the data. So one, you have to ingest it. That's non-trivial. You have to have a framework to assess it. That's non-trivial. You have to be able to productize this and put this into a package that's readable. That's non-trivial. And you've, and then you've had to have done it so many times. Uh, thousands of times, which is what we've done. And that's also non-trivial. Yeah. And so I could go into any company and say, here are the types of things that we look at. But, you know, for any consumer company, it's, it's basically you're looking at all forms of con- customer engagement. Right? And, and some forms of that customer engagement is just the, w- the intent and the way in which they came. So it could be anything, right? Like I think demand signals is what you care about. And then you go to the next level, right? right. The next thing people will care about is unit economics. Yeah. For some people that matters a lot. Some people it doesn't. So it's more about how do you interpret the data once you have it and the accuracy of it. We we feel like we're very accurate at it because we have a ground truth perspective on how the company has been performing. Yeah. How about on enterprise companies? How how does that differ for you in terms of what you look at or what you think most helpful? It's essentially the same. And any company that builds software is measurable. And you just have to understand what are the demand signals that you care about with your investment framework and philosophy to invest in that, com- that company. Some people are okay with a slow growth 6% year over year. Yes. Some people are not. Some people want 50% year over yeah. year. Some people are not okay with that. Um, you know, we generally on the venture side are looking at three to five X year over year growth in something. It could be right. users, could be revenue, could be uh, customer engagement. There's something that is helping propel the company forward. Yeah. Um, and you're, and you're digging in and becoming more bespoke on what you care about. Talk about Cardo, because I think that that company took a lot of people by surprise. Uh, you, you saw it, you know, it got all the way relatively early. What did you see in Carta that maybe others did? Um, you're welcome there for the story. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll take a step back and to talk about Carta, we talk about Slack and then we talk about Facebook. And what's really important, and again, this is just another indication of how um, you know, traditional VCs have their mindsets are a company has raised uh, a certain amount of capital. They didn't really hit the certain metrics when they saw it. And so they just assumed the company is tired. This has happened time and time again. You know, when we assessed Slack, uh, we were able to eventually assess what we believe was an N of one outcome that the, it, there was a possibility to replace email. And you could see multiple networks internally and externally. And I think this is the key thing um, that we're interacting with the product um, with each other. So very similar to email, right? Like I'm not within your organization, but I'm willing to talk to you and I can uh, create communication protocols to make that happen. Um, so we saw that that's measurable. That's, you know, uniquely identifiable um, in a quantitative way. Facebook is well known for this. And, um, you know, and our team uh, has done this so many times that we were able to kind of recognize this. And I wouldn't call this pattern matching because pattern matching would be, I think this can happen because all these companies, when you meet them during their series A and B, they'll say, I believe I have network effect. I think I have this, or they'll say it with confidence, but they can't measure it. Yeah. And so we always go in and say, okay, well, what can we quantify around those types of statements? What can we quantify ourselves if we have a thesis? 
And Facebook was really the first company outside of the social gaming companies around that uh, same ecosystem uh, where you were measuring network effect of growth in, you know, uh, parts of the United States at a high school, at a college, yeah. um, you know, Japan versus Turkey, different flows, uh, user account privacy control versus newsfeed. All of these things have different uh, frameworks around understanding growth. Right. Um, and if you really think about what growth means, it just means product market fit and can you scale it? And so we did this at Slack, as I mentioned. Um, and when we met Carta, we used these frameworks to understand, hey, does this company have any semblance of network effect? The, the company says they have network effect. We're hearing it ancillary wise that there's network effect, but we don't know for sure. Um, so can we measure that? And so we did. And so we, lot of, we saw a lot of early signs of connections between stakeholders. Right? Stakeholders are employees. Uh, stakeholders are the company themselves. Um, and stakeholders are the investors that invest in the companies. And then we saw multiple, multiple interactions that started getting stronger and stronger between those nodes. Again, that's measurable, something that the company had not done initially. And so part of our goal was when we invest, let's help them align and reorient themselves to think this way, similar to what we did at Slack and similar to what the growth team and the data science team at, did at Facebook during the early days. So that's what we set out to do. So we did the Series C um, into Carta, and then we did the Series D, and then um, you know we basically aligned ourselves with the company for as much as we can around orientation uh, of what they can become on products that can be built on top of their network. Yeah. And one of the products that you know obviously people know about is the 409A, and then the cap table, and really recently they went into investor services with fund administration. But if you basically look, they have 10,000 companies on the platform. They're going to have a couple hundred funds on the platform. The AUM that comes from those funds, you basically see this, you know, system of record monster company, um, that can be built and they can go into as many adjacent territories as they want because they're building a network that just continues to reinforce and strengthen itself. Similar to how you've seen other network effect companies. How did AngelList miss this opportunity? I don't think it's about missed opportunity. You know, AngelList is a great company too. Um, it has, you know, built an ecosystem around angels themselves, uh, companies hiring, making sure that you can kind of propel them from one stage to the next. And I think what you've seen them do is evolve from the early stage to parts of the mid stage by keeping, you know, pro rata and value add services. So, so I think they just, they are completely different companies with different types of network effects. Yeah. One is more prone to high frequency of transactions and the other one is more prone towards qualitative transactions. Yeah. Let's talk about product market fit because it's something you guys are very curious about. What are the most common mistakes or misconceptions people have around product market fit in terms of maybe thinking they have it when they don't or, or not realizing when they do have it or how someone else is Yeah, You know, if you're a team that has raised a couple million dollars and all of your investors at the seed stage are saying, it's time to go raise. I see some metrics and it's really great. Um, or, you know, uh, you're a team that speaks very confidently about what you're building. Of course, you feel like you have it. You have this irrational passion to build something that you wanted to solve. And your problem set with your solution set, um, you believe is starting to work. So, right? so in some cases, you believe it yourself. Uh, without any quantitative data. And then, and then you use some surface level data in some cases to propel you forward and say, I think I'm ready for venture capital to scale five or 10x from here or 100x from here. Uh, I think part of the issue here is if you don't know quantitatively if your product is working or not, that's one part. And then the second piece is how much capital should you really raise to get to the next milestone? Should you really raise a series A or should you raise half that amount to get to the next milestone? So a lot of what we try to do is just ground truth, have a conversation. Just here is exactly where your company is. Here's how you've performed. Here's what it's going to take to get to the next scale. This may or may not work. Um, and in some cases, these companies are not meant to have venture capital. They're meant to distribute capital back to themselves. They're meant to get a loan. They're meant to be a small to medium business. If you were to have us assess product market fit for you know, a local coffee shop, they might hit all the marks. They have retention of customers. People keep coming back but they're not growing. They don't have any net expansion, uh, but they are good enough for where they are. Does that company deserve venture capital? Maybe if they have a unique value proposition in the way in which they think about growing, uh, but in most cases, they won't. Um, they won't need venture capital. So I think a part of this is that we see so many companies all over the world uh, you know, roughly we'll do our assessment on about um, you know, 200 to 300 of these companies where we go really deep. And it's really great because this is the first time they have 
a view of how investors view them. This is the first time they get to see data science and product engineering in action to gauge and grade what they've done so far. Now, and it's the first time they might, you know, learn something new that they've never learned before about how they want to strategically move their company forward. So then you ask the question to the founders. Okay, great. Now we're in alignment about ground truth, which is the hardest thing to do. That is the hardest thing everyone tries to figure out. Now that you're in alignment with ground truth of how the company's been performing, let's start a discussion on what it takes to go to the next stage. That's a much easier way of building alignment with founders and investing through them than believing in a story, telling your other partners, I think they can do this. Especially when you don't know the question of, is it working? And that's the main problem I think we've always seen with the industry. And what we always want to try to solve is, how close can we get to quantitatively answering, is it working? Right. In some cases, you can't. That's okay. You know, there are companies where there won't be enough data to make a, uh, a decision yet. And again, the data doesn't tell you to make a decision. It's just a part of the equation. Right. Right? If you look at the three foundations of any company, product, market, and team, there's very little data on the team. You can Everyone basically has their qualitative frameworks around how to assess a team. We look at, you know, product centric, uh, uh, metrics that we get from, you know, the software that they've built. Yeah. And then there's the market. And you kind of take all those three pieces and ask, do I think this is a venture scalable model? Right. To expand on some of the product market points you're talking about, what are sort of the different quantitative approaches, uh, that you take to, to evaluate? I, I think I, w- I would just, you know, echo what I said before. The approach is really like very simple. If you're a engineering team, product data science team at the company, what are the things that you do to try to understand what is working in your company and what is not working? Uh, that's essentially what we do. We come in with our heuristics of how we've viewed any company. We look at customer engagement, retention, whatever you want to uh, uh, define it as, always different for each company. And we look at the primary data that the company is throwing off, right? This is a treasure trove of information that matters. We take that. And then we basically build our own bottoms up view and then we try to, um, and then we present that back as if it's like a dashboard for the yeah. company to see. And then we start the discussion on what makes sense, what doesn't make sense for their company. When we're building this bottoms up view, you are learning about so much of the company, what's valuable, what's not yeah. so that you can start asking the next question. What's the qualitative stuff that matters? Right. right. How did you do this? What happened to pricing? Why was there this blip? What, like, what was the way in which this affected these cohorts? Not to test them but to ask what their plans are on their future roadmap. Right. That's really important because if you're a product manager at a company, what do you do? You look at you look at past performance. You look at bespoke analysis that you're going to do in the future. You look at the way in which you're going to test stuff. Yeah. And then you have your engineering team and your uh, data science team come up with plans around what the future roadmap will look like. We're almost no different. Yeah. Um, we're coming there to try to figure out how to align with the company as much as possible and gain the most context. Right. So when, you, when one thinks about Venture, you know, data-driven venture, venture as a product, because you sort of separate it into a few different ways. One is how you source companies. Two is how you diligence companies. Maybe three is how you support companies. Mm-hmm. Would you agree those are the, the buckets? Yeah, the way, the way we define stuff is there is sourcing, there's evaluating, there's aligning, and then there's managing. Places where we focus all of our attention, almost 90%, is on the latter three. So on evaluation... As I mentioned, we ingest the primary data on aligning, making sure that the way in which we think about helping the company step function is in alignment with the company and they believe in the strategy. Otherwise, we won't partner. So we are fairly concentrated. We are not a fit for all companies and managing the company towards success where we continue to do more bespoke analysis as they get larger or if it's not working as well, where we can unlock more data for them to help them make better decisions. We are not going to make the decisions. Our goal is to unlock the data so that they can make the decisions. And it may be right or wrong, but if it is the wrong decision, at least they'll know sooner rather than later. Yeah. And when you say unlock the data, why are they incapable? Or what do you know about unlocking data that the company themselves may not know? Yeah. In some cases, there are companies that are very good at this. And it's, it's very rare. I think what you see is we have a holistic perspective on companies, markets, sectors. We see multiple companies, the way in which they're performing. So we can continue to benchmark, gauge, uh, and kind of show the value of what a company needs to aspire towards in order to be best in their class. And it's, you know, it's actually pretty rewarding because if you set everything to ground level and truth around how you are performing across all the appendages of your company, you tend to start making different decisions versus, you know, through your gut or I believe this. 
Um, and it's not to say that you don't have a vision or a North Star. It's more about uh, what can I get access to to make better decisions? And that, that's that's the whole point. The whole point is, can we help accelerate a lot of these companies because they haven't built these teams out before? You know, when you hire a data scientist, you, you can't just tell them, do this. They have to have an understanding of your business, the heuristics, what to kind of um, start digging into. And and the best companies in the world, like Google, Facebook, et cetera, they've been doing this for so long that they've you know you know mastered certain parts uh, of what it means to have data scientists and engineers focus on this um, uh, on this path of product market fit. Uh, whereas you know if you're a company of two people, if you're a company of ten people, you've been focused on surviving and getting your product to a working state. And so our whole goal is to like let us help you define that working state and what it means to make that working state stronger and stronger over time. You know, I think some companies are capable. Our whole goal is to teach them this over time so that they can do it themselves. But as we've seen with a lot of our companies, regardless of stage, there's always something new that they haven't done, and we can continue to help them unlock it. You, 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 you don't focus as much on the sourcing side. Is that because there's less of a unique advantage to be got, got, gained from, from data science? Sourcing is an aspect of... Um, it, I think it's one part of the equation that matters for, obviously, venture capital. Um, and we've always partnered with other firms. We've always gotten inbound and you know, strong referrals as well. Um, so we're not opposed to using data science to source, but look at kind of the parameters of what you do. Um, a lot of the parameters of data sourcing, data uh, using data to source is um, let me find publicly available data. You're either scraping or using credit card panels. Um, you're looking at Crunchbase, PitchBook at different yeah. stages. Um, you're looking at the YC list and you're just going out yeah. to those companies and you're hoping you might like the idea. So you're taking a qualitative framework of, do I like this market? Do I like this right. team? So again, across those three verticals of product, market, and team, the only, you know, you're using your, uh, your frameworks for what you think matters right. and you might pass. Yeah. Our whole goal is let's build a bottoms up view. Let's do the work on the company. Let's pitch to them on why we think they might be yeah. worthwhile, regardless of where it comes from sourcing. It's not to say that we don't use data science for sourcing. It's just that something, it's not yeah. something that we focus on, um, as 100%. And let's make sure we not, we, we're not going to miss the best companies right. because we had a bias. And that's, that's our main goal. Yeah. And that gives us the ability to invest in founders, um, where, you know, someone might have been a waitress and she wants to start a B2B company, uh, where someone was a, uh, a karate teacher and decided to start a vertically integrated SaaS company. Um, someone had built consumer products before, failed, but decided to build an enterprise company. And the three companies I'm mentioning are all companies that are worth over, you know, half a billion or more. And so I think the, to understand, you know, how powerful this is, is that we get to reduce bias. We get to partner with anyone from anywhere in the world and we can help them accelerate their business because we have a view on the way in which companies get built. Uh, once you get to close enough demand signals for product market fit. Capital as a service was trying to be a unique sourcing tool, right? Uh, so capital as a service at, at social capital was essentially built on the frameworks, uh, of what we had. So we had different heuristics and frameworks in our understanding product market fit for certain companies. Uh, and the goal was for, you know, one of our teams at social capital to find possibly outlier style companies outside of the traditional now, areas of venture capital, like, you know, Silicon Valley, New York, LA, et cetera. And, um, what I'd say is that, um, uh, you know, you could have a framework of using software to make investments, or you can have a framework to think about using software and data to make better decisions. So there are usually two extremes. There are people in the industry, in my opinion, that, um, are on one side that say data doesn't matter. All I care about is like how I view the company because I've been around for so long. I would call that the tradi traditional VC set yeah. that no matter what stage you're at, they use the same framework, you know, from series C to series D. Um, and I see that over and over again. And then there's the other side of the world, which is I think what you saw at social capital, which is like we can automate everything. What we really kind of fit is in the middle, right? Like when you are building a company, um, there are people, there are variables that are human. Um, you have to work hard to help the company get to from stage to stage, even as a VC. Um, that does matter. And uh, our whole goal is can we get as much context in the company using our data science so that when we need to do the other aspects of company building, we're there to force multiply in the way in which we could have done it as a past as like one individual, right? We are set, our, uh, our firm is set up like a company. Like I work on product. Ted works on operations. Jonathan works on uh, tech. Um, so it's like, you know, you have your CTO, COO, and CPO, 
And uh, we have data scientists and engineers with the team that are, are like fully focused on helping our companies as, as a partner. Um, so we don't have Monday partner meetings. We never, we almost never make decisions on, only on a Monday. We have standups every day, like a product team, uh, and we're building products and we're building relationships with our companies. And so I think that's part of uh, the equation of why we are focused in this way versus being on either extreme. Yeah. Let's go into those, those three elements, uh, team, market, and product. Maybe, maybe team, because you know, sometimes I'll, I'll see you, uh, you know, you're investing or consider a team that is maybe young or early or doesn't have a ton of data on them and maybe is early um, in their uh, sort of traction as well. What sort of qualitative or quantitative frameworks do you have for, for evaluating a team? Yeah, we're all very different at the firm. You know, we have this perspective uh, given our sweet spot is you know, 5 to $10 million checks, series A and Bs. Uh, we do other uh, rounds at other stages opportunistically. But again, it's the word opportunistic where we feel like we can help the company step function. And at the earliest stage, uh, I want to call it pre-seed and seed. It's different frameworks, right? You have you have teams that have never built anything before that are coming in fresh and saying they want to build this product for this market. Here's our solution. And it might be that whole team and napkin idea. Um, then you have some that have a demo which is like, this is what it's going to look like. Um, and then you have people that are coming out of companies that we all know well, that's saying, I want to build a company in X sector. Here's my background. I think I can do it. Give me, give me capital. And so you use different frameworks across all of that, right? You either like the market and the team, that's a framework. You like parts of their product um, and the market. You may not like the team, but you may still do the deal. I think you've seen that from a lot of people. I mean, we tend to you know, consider ourselves um, tribe-like in that we want to treat all of our companies equal, no matter what the check size is. And in order to do that, we end up having to be more concentrated, but also more uh, opportunistic with our time. And so when we do write a small check, which we have, we call it our angel style checks, is that a partner sponsors an area that they care about. So if I'm doing a deal, I will act like an angel, which is I'm going to be accountable for this check and I'm going to be accountable for my time to that company and make sure that they're actually integrated with all of our companies in portfolio, regardless of the check size that we've written to the other portfolio. Yep. So if someone has a 25K check that we've written to them, I'm treating them the same as a $40 million right. check that we've written. How do you think about markets? Do you think about, do you have sort of a tops down, hey, we're excited about these markets. Let's go find companies who are doing this in this space. And vice versa, if an ad tech or MarTech deal comes in or any space that's non-grata these days, are you, you know, crossing it off or how do you view markets? You know, everyone says they like big markets, but we don't know what big markets are. I, I would generally um, prescribe to Mark Andreessen's philosophy that you know, software is eating the world. And then I would take that a step further and say software is being proliferated in everything we do. And so if you just take that into how we live our lives, uh, how much time that we have throughout our day and what are we doing in those chunks of time, like what are the products that take up that space we generally kind of look at those markets, right? You'll you'll look at energy because you use energy. You'll look at real estate because you live in um, uh, in a home or a house. Uh, you'll look at obviously transportation, auto. You look at all these pieces, and then you look at the full vertically integrated stack of what is in this industry and what's either being deregulated or fragmented because of software. You know, I could I could go on about every single one of these markets, but we're generalists by that fashion. Um, we look at. Uh, markets that are interesting for us, regardless of if people think it's small or not. We don't actually care because we believe that if we build a bottoms up view, we can have a better understanding of what the TAM could look like for a company. Yeah. And given that we're investing at the early stage, TAM may not matter if you give it enough time to matter. Yeah. Let's talk about a couple of companies in your portfolio that I didn't let the, the A or B of and C uh, or A and B uh, in the case of cover. And just talk about what you saw in, uh, in them that maybe others didn't and, and how you thought about, you know, your unique ability to support them. This sort of industry, how, how you, you attract think, think about support. How, how about cover? What was sort of unique did you see that led you to lead the, lead the Yeah. So, I mean, first off, thank you because you made the introduction. Okay. So I appreciate it. But, you know, we met cover and they had this thesis, uh, which is important, um, that most insurance companies today are built uh, one product line at a time. So if you kind of go back to the advent 10 years ago of the companies that are being built, uh, they're doing renter's insurance, auto insurance, um, you know, homeowners, uh, life, et cetera. And they're all very specific to a product line. And uh, Karn, who's uh, the, the founder, and, and Natalie, who's the, uh, one of the co-founders, and Anand, the, the three of them together, they, they basically had come to us and said, 
the way in which a, uh, insurance company of the future is going to work, become big and massive is to do two things. One is to be an insurance company actually similar to insurance companies of the past. So back to basics and being able to not turn down any customer for any reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do you do that? So it sounded crazy. And I just kept asking and asking what this would look like and, and what their approach was. And so their whole approach was, we want to be a broker. We want to be um, uh, a Switzerland in the space, but we also want to have our own product lines. What does that allow you to do? Well, that allows you to not turn down a customer. Okay, great. Well, how do you actually do that from a product perspective? Um, and so in most cases, people look, oh, cover is the... Uh, mobile app. Well, they're not just the mobile app. They are a choice on your point of sale system. Uh, when you do a driving school in a certain state, they are also your option. They're, they just have a multitude of ways in which they engage with the customer, which I think is the most unique part about them is that they don't consider themselves a next generation mobile app insurance company. They think of themselves as the next generation insurance company. And then they have channels in the way in which they approach the customer. And those channels are products in themselves that kind of aspire to the intent of the customer. You may want to do it just all through mobile. I may care about getting a hold of someone, an agent on the phone. Someone else only wants to buy insurance through their channel partners. Another person wants to consider uh, a broker that they are already working with, which Cover will also work with. And uh, they don't want to change their insurance company. So they'll just use Cover to represent them as a broker. And so if you look at that flexibility of what they can do, they can end up working with anyone very similar to the way in which insurance companies work today. Like having that type of vision in the beginning was great. Um, clearly, as venture capitalists, we didn't believe it right from the beginning. Um, so our approach to kind of understanding what was working and what wasn't for Cover early on uh, was to understand their product market fit across all their channels. Their first channel was mobile, second channel was Shopify, um, and then the subsequent channels after that. And so then when you start thinking about their unique value proposition to the customer, how do I measure success? And then how do I measure product market fit? Not just as a holistic company, but just each channel is product market fit. That's how we gained conviction. And then we took all that, productized it, gave it to them and said, here's how we think about what's working, what's not, how we would prioritize our time. Here's how you should think about your capital. They ended up being one of the most capital efficient companies in the space. They're growing at such a rapid rate. They've, you know, I would, I would say in, uh, in many cases, they're rivaling a lot of people that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars, but they're doing it at a pace that's sustainable. They're doing it at a pace of what we believe is going to be the next, you know, insurance company that's going to last decades and be yeah. resilient. It's really interesting. I, I feel like, you know, this is like, you know, thinking about, you know, venture as a product and data-driven approach, you guys, uh, at Tribe and Creative Social Capital, really pioneered and others haven't really followed. And you've seen even the best, you know, about Kiefer Boy, and uh, you talk about how it's really an artisan, uh, you know, industry and how it's, it's most likely not going to change or be very different or, you know, Founders Fund, um, doesn't really do this stuff or Benchmark doesn't really do this stuff. Or Mark Andreessen and Jason Horowitz doesn't really do this stuff. What do they see sort of different about the world that they sort of see venture as more of this artisan? So I'll, I'll flip it back on you and ask, well, if you've been doing something your whole life a certain way and it's kind of worked for you, what's your motivation to change? Not a lot, right? If you've been doing product management the same way for a long time, your motivation to change is not a lot. So a lot of questions, you know, VCs ask, why doesn't Google do this? Why doesn't Uber do this? Why don't these other companies do it? When you're doing a series A, it's one of the, one of the stupidest questions people ask. Because if you're used to doing it a certain way, you usually don't adapt or change, yeah. right? Yahoo didn't adapt or change to Google. Google right. didn't adapt or change to Facebook, right? Like there's just multiple stories like that. Um, so it's the same thing in venture. Uh, just because venture has been done a certain way for 40 years doesn't mean it hasn't changed or incrementally changed. It has. Some funds have gotten larger. They're deploying capital at later stages. Some have become registered investment advisors. Some are using data for sourcing. That wasn't the case before because before you had people on the phone just calling outbound. So things have changed. I think people just don't care to admit that the periphery of what they do um, is changing, but their core investment decision-making um, is still the same and that isn't going to change. And I think what's wrong there is that, you know, because you use Excel and you feel good about it, doesn't mean that you can't use software scripts and tools to be able to make better decisions and augment you as a human. That's essentially where we come from. We're not saying that uh, data takes over any of our decision-making. It just helps us make better decisions. Yeah. And it helps us make better decisions in the future when we make mistakes. Yep. Ten years from now, do you expect the venture landscape to look drastically different than it does today? How do you sort of see it like? 
Yeah, there's a part of me that says no, so we can continue to do what we do really well. And then there's a part of me that where I hope there are more people that kind of prescribe to the way in which um, you partner with entrepreneurs, because I think it's really a big value add for uh, founders and management teams. It, it helps them more than it hurts anyone else. Yeah. So I'm hoping that, you know, a lot of this of what we do, because we've open sourced the way in which we've approached it, right. um, gets proliferated further and further. So I, I would say, you know, 10 years is a pretty long time. Things can't change. And I'm sure right. uh, people are going to try. But you know, I, I think it's also hard. You know, if you, let's just say you were the person, Jonathan, our, my partner likes to say this a lot. Let's just say you were the person that came up with accounting frameworks uh, 100 years ago. You have the frameworks, but then it's the interpretation of those frameworks, right? Your statement of um, balance sheet, your cash flow, et cetera. Everyone has the same level of information when you invest in public companies. It's the interpretation on top of that, um, right. what you believe uh, is different so you can find alpha. It's yeah. no different in venture, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and I actually think the reason why venture, people use the word power law, or if you are doing a seed or series A investment, they need a certain percentage ownership. The reason they do that is because they know a certain percentage of their companies are going to fail. Right. The reason the, a certain percentage of their companies are going to fail is because of the antiquated frameworks we use to make decisions. Right. And so our whole goal has been, well, our frameworks are help us reduce our loss ratio yeah. for making, which gives us the ability to have a better portfolio construction, right. which ends up being more concentrated versus like, I need, you know, 25 companies and I need one of them to return my fund. Well, right. well, you only do that because your frameworks are so antiquated. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to talk about social capital for, for a second. I, I think the, you know, social capital obviously had this epic rise and then recent, you know, somewhat of a fall. And it seems that it's not anything close to like the big call so it's like Theranos, which had a legal, um, you know, legality and ethical concerns. And there's like, we're talking about fire festival that is sort of like, um, you know, just epic execution fail and like fraud. Um, and then there's things like clinical, which just raised a lot of money. And then I guess don't ship anything where social capital was like doing tremendously well and just maybe had like a people implosion. When things like that happen, when things are doing well and then certain things go haywire, what, why does that happen? Or how do you, is that sort of a, you, does that happen frequently? Have you seen that in your career? Or is that just sort of a, and what is that? Or very, you know, an exception to the rule that typically when things implode, it's because they're dying or struggling or, or there's some um, black swan thing that happens. Yeah, I, I, you know, if I, if I go back to my career, and if I look at my competitive set as well that uh, we're in the ecosystem. So let's take Zynga, for example. I think you had a very talented team, talented founder, a very talented approach to the market. But the way in which they hired culturally, um, I think, was more mercenary than anything else. Um, and so what happened is that you had a cultural implosion internally of what mattered, what didn't, and then more short-term thinking. So, uh, and, and I think that's like a really quick way of... Uh, of capturing what might have happened at Zynga. And there's lots of other things, but I think at its core was that, you know, uh, rot started to proliferate within the organization. Now, I think you can have that in any organization. And depending on what the organization is doing, how strong that platform is, or how, what I'd call how resilient it is to rot, um, is what makes it successful and what doesn't make it successful, right? When, the, uh, when you're able to purge those things out of the system or inoculate, so I would say like your best 10%, of moving the company or your firm uh, forward, um, you can generally survive. And, and, and I think you've seen this in the case of, you know, when we sold our company, Lolaps, to Nexon, when we uh, went to Yahoo from MessageMe, you had pieces of this, right, where you know, the in some cases the platform wasn't strong enough to uh, be resilient to the rot that existed. But at the same time, you have so many smart people across all of these yeah. companies and so the question ends up being, uh, what is the North Star or the atomic unit of what they care about? Um, how do you bring that together? Yeah. And so uh, at Social Capital, I would say it's probably some of the smartest people I've ever worked with across any of the things that I've built. Um, and, and you're putting them together to figure out how to facilitate what uh, venture capital should look like, what growth should look like, what credit should look like at a certain point, um, and the public markets. And, and in some cases, you know, I, I would say because... So many smart people were in the room. We came up with so many different frameworks and ideas of what could and could not happen um, that we ended up testing a lot of these theses of what was good and what was bad. Um, I would say like the ultimate transition for our team 
moving into ventures that we believe we were very good at this stage of investing and why we focused at it um, as an early stage venture team. Like if you were to transplant our team, it's essentially the same team that was at um, Social Capital. And uh, what, what I'd credit Chamatha, to be honest, is the approach that he had taken when he was scaling Facebook just the rigor and the types of personalities that you wanted in the room, the types of creative ideas around how you could deploy certain types of thinking into a new industry, company, capital, was it, it's far beyond what other people were thinking. And it's part of why we all came together, uh, was that there was this vision of that we could think very differently in the way in which we partnered with our, our founders and the companies. And we did that. Um, and so what, I, what I'd say, like, uh, uh, you know, the success story out of social capital is the framework in the way in which we all think. Um, and then how many other people now that have moved on from social capital to the next, next choices in their life or the next journey is that we're still using those same frameworks. We're still working yeah. together on it. We're all still pretty closely tied together, including the people at social capital and including Chamath, who we already yeah. still work with today. And I think what you saw with Chamath was that he wanted to start building more control positions. Um, he wanted to start thinking about different stages, um, as you saw with the advent of the SPAC um, yeah. in the in the in the previous years, that he's doing exactly what he wants. And yeah. that's really valuable. And we're doing exactly what we want. Um, and there are other uh, yeah. former partners who are doing exactly what they want. Totally. And in a, in a, a smaller way, I'm, I'm, I'm super grateful for Social Capital because, and, and you, because uh, I got my start being a, you know, at Scout slash agent with, uh, with Social Capital with you. Um, so yeah, just a lot of awesome talent at all, all levels of, 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 of the firm. I mean, how did you settle on a Series A, Series B? You know, why not do an accelerator? You know, take on YC. Why not take on first round? Why not take on the growth fund? How, how did you settle on that? If you look at the market today, there's two things that are happening. You have a pr proliferation of capital that's at the early stage. Uh, and then you have a proliferation of capital at the late stage. Now, why does that happen? We have a lot more liquidity in the system. We've, we've had a bull run for a pretty long time. Um, so how do you differentiate uh, at the series seed, pre-seed uh, seed stage? Uh, well, it's brand. Uh, it's what you can do to have the company help propel it from the next stage to the next stage. Um, and so there's a lot of what I'd say qualitative pieces of company building foundations that need to be built. That's what YC does. That's what you guys do um, at Village. That's what First Round has done. And they all have a different approach. And what I'd say is in order for you to be successful in seed, my, you know, my strong opinion is that you need to have a larger value add of resources to help a company's propel and a brand behind it to help them get to the next stage, you know, hiring, et cetera. Um, and then the next set of investors and from where we come from, we know how to help companies amplify their product market fit post that stage. Um, we know how to identify it. We can help them think through what's working, what's not at a really early stage. So we end up building a lot of these relationships with, you know, YCU first round, um, like we've done many, many times and help companies kind of guide and say, well, this is what it takes from us to raise a series A. You know, uh, do you have to have a million ARR with us? Absolutely not. Um, do you have to have um, certain amounts of retention metrics? Absolutely not. What we basically are saying is that when we do our general overall check, our health check, uh, when we give you uh, a grading or a score uh, on our Magic 8-Ball, it gives you a perspective of how we think and what would it take to get an investment from us. Um, and that's like a quantitative like product or a piece of paper I'm delivering yeah. to you to let you know what it takes and uh, what it would take for us to want to invest in you too, right? Like how can we align? Um, so the reason we chose Series A and B is that's the time where you have shades of gray. That's a time where data isn't everything, uh, where it's just a part of the equation. And we've been able to successfully find companies at the earliest stage using our quantitative metrics and finding companies really, really early um, and providing this insight. Because when you provide this insight, our belief is that there helps them step function faster. So that's why we did it at the earliest stage. Now, does that mean we can't be helpful at later stages? No, we are helpful. Um, but, you know, as I mentioned, you've had a proliferation of capital at the late stage. Um, and so it becomes more commodity oriented, right? Like you're, you, if your company is working at the series A and B stage, you have a plethora of capital to choose from and it becomes more transactional. Our whole goal is not to be transactional. Our whole goal is to be relationship driven alignment with the founders and make sure that we can stick with them as long as possible. Yeah. Could you see yourself getting into different asset classes over time, like, uh, growth or, or credit or, or some of the other experiments that some capital is trying or. You say, no, we're just going to 
double down on this and be, be best at this. I think our goal is to be the best at this. Does that mean we won't go outside the scope and invest in later stage rounds? No, we've done that. It's, I think it's more, do we believe and are we a fit for the company where we can help them step function, yeah. where we can amplify their product market fit that exists today? And if the answer is no, then we're, we're not the right partners. And, and I think what we've been able to show time and time again is um, that we're very good at actually still delivering that value to even people that we have not invested in right. to quantitatively tell them, hey, we're not the right fit for you. We don't think it'll work for us because this is the type of work that we do. Um, here's the time that we spend once right. we invest. Uh, but this is a guidebook that we start with and we don't think we can really help move the needle at all. Yep. And, and I think that's something that most investors don't do because they think they can do anything. I want to touch on a few uh, pieces that you, you've written over the last uh, couple of years. But one is, uh, we talked a little bit earlier about innovation dilemma. You, you wrote a post about how companies can avoid the innovation dilemma. Let me unpack the, the main, the crux of where you're trying to do that piece. Yeah, we have this thesis that everyone regresses to the mean, which is they become mediocre um, at a certain point. And uh, you have to figure out ways in which to avoid that. Um, and so a lot of to be honest, a lot of the pieces that I wrote were either frustrations that I saw at companies where I couldn't help an outcome, or there were my own companies where I had unsuccessful attempts, uh, or at organizations where I was an executive, um, a la Yahoo, um, where I couldn't really affect change because the momentum of the ship was going too far where they were just sinking and, and, I, and I couldn't fix it. And so a, a lot of it are, are around these uh, pieces that I've written is essentially uh, identifying problems and trying to find solutions that could help those companies, uh, even while I was there. Um, and in some cases, this worked really well where I have companies like, you know, literally print them out and it's on their, you know, uh, when I, when I come in at their office, it's on the wall and it's like a step by step guide. I think they've made it much better than I have. Um, and then they kind of build frameworks off of it. And I would say that's more for team, uh, oriented stuff than it has been for, uh, the philosophical frameworks. But, but what's really important here is, this innovator's dilemma thing really comes from, I had a quantitative approach uh, as I started thinking about what the quantitative approaches are. How could you just learn more from what's happening and get to better decisions? And the more data that you have to be able to unpack um, hypotheses that you can ask, get back answers in a much quicker format, uh, my belief is that you will just generally make better decisions. And so a lot of these pieces are about like, how do you just get into that cycle to get to a place where you can make better decisions. It's not just a management team or a CEO, but even like your mid-level folks that are, you know, running product and engineering that are doing this and battling this on the day-to-day. What are they really, what are they really fighting for is a, is a part of all these frameworks of the pieces that I've written. Yeah. And uh, on the note, you, you wrote a piece about how to build a people platform. Mm-hmm. We were earlier talking about how to build resilient teams that sort of separates teams who, you know, who are crumble under, um, under duress versus resilient teams. And how do you think about building resilient teams as, as part of building a people platform? Yeah, there's a, uh, you know, there in, I don't know if you've read this book, Thinking Fast and Slow. You know, what it, what it really comes down to is some people are reactionary. I just need to fix this as soon as possible without thinking through it. And then some people have an appropriate response. Right? This is like, it's a, it's a, it's a verbiage that the military uses a lot too. And, um, I was, and, and so one of the things that, um, has always been like always kind of astounding for me is that when companies are building, they kind of react to growth, right? Like I don't prescribe to blitz scaling because it creates more mercenary style attitudes. And I actually think it creates more biases in the organization because you keep looking for more of the same versus the diversity of thought. Yeah. And so they just keep reacting, reacting, reacting. So you know this, if I, if I just slapped you across the face, you would immediately react to it. Um, yeah. and, and that's not what you want at a company. You want to have companies create responses. And so I've always been kind of puzzled by the way in which some companies uh, are advised by their investors around, you just need to hire this person from this organization because they you know, grew this company from 50 to 100 million in revenue. And so what they do is they go after these resumes. Well, almost every single time that I've seen this happen is that the resumes don't add value to the company. They actually create more toxicity. And the companies that I've seen work really well is that they grow their ingrown talent to create a ecosystem for them to succeed and inject the right people at the right stage, regardless of resume or not. Uh, companies that I think I've seen do this successfully, not perfect, having companies like Facebook, um, there, you know, obviously there have been some social gaming companies that have done this in the past too. Um, ones that worked really well and ones that didn't. And you can kind of see the teams that worked really well are the ones that just generally had less churn. So it's not, it's not a complicated 
thing to understand is that if your employees are generally happy with their momentum and success, um, they're generally, uh, have an understanding of where they're going and they have, um, you know, positive feedback loop or transparent feedback loop, they churn less. And so the people platform was more about like, how do you start thinking about investing in your own people, similar to what the credo of Johnson and Johnson in the past. And don't forget that just because old companies had created this a long time ago, old companies are bad. It means that they had a thesis and some of it worked. And so what are the things that we can use today in the way in which Amazon has grown uh, past companies like GM and Johnson Johnson have grown for remember 50, hundred years in some cases, um, if you go back far enough, uh, where our technology companies in some cases are not even more than five years old. And like, if you look at Microsoft, it's like what, 35 to 40 years old now. Um, so you don't really have a lot of data of like, this is the best way to uh, build companies. Um, so it's more about like, what, what, what are the, the best things that you can take from each, uh, uh, parts of these companies over the last hundred years that you can use? Yeah. Uh, units of time is the currency. What were you trying to issues there? Uh, I mean, we prescribe to a philosophy of knowledge accumulation and through knowledge accumulation, you can make better decisions. Um, so you can kind of see this reoccurring theme of decision making, whether it's right or wrong, is just the process of acquiring knowledge. And so units of time for us is more about how do you compound knowledge um, in, in some sense. And, you know, over time, it's obviously evolved. And, and that was kind of our first iterations of thinking through it. But, you know, like in some cases, life is very short. So you're trying to figure out how to optimize for what you need to get. But in some cases, it's pretty long. Um, and so you kind of have to try to figure out the balance between the two of what you're focused on. And I think a company horizon, units of time really matters, yeah. right? There are there are moments when you just need to be very tactical, get things done as quickly as possible and make sure you have the best data available to make the best decision. But then you also need to understand that it's going to take time to compound. And what does that look like? Um, and so a lot of this was, just a, you know, framing the again goal of what it means to you know create a north star what it means right. to have an atomic unit for your company how do you orient yourself um a, a lot of these uh things that we write about quantitatively or qualitatively are really focused on right. to be honest creating that end of one outcome yeah and so that's that's how you know i would think about units of time is like it's like a subset of how to get there yeah uh what's the common mistake people mis- uh make when they're or misconception when they're choosing their North Star? What's a misconception people have about what needs to be in their North Star? They read a blog post and think they need to do the same thing, right? If you look at any company, uh, any company that has been successful hasn't been because they've copied someone else's format. They've they've done really well because they just do what they do better, yeah. right? They take other philosophies of what had worked at other companies and figure out how that could be injected into their company for what they do rather than try to copy some other, other frameworks. Um, and it's kind of like the Roman philosophy, right? Like the Romans didn't have like this innate religion at the start. Um, they added different religions to continue to conquer more lands. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of similar here in that as a company, you know, you have your value sets that you care about, your principles that you don't want to change. Uh, but there are other tactics that you might want to change over time because you are, you know, a company is an entity. It's like a malleable um, entity at the end of the day. And so you want to make that happen because you have different cultural sets as you scale, different people that are coming on board, different ways in which you think about building product. It's not just like one hierarchical way. Um, and even the great companies like Apple don't do it the same way across their departments of product development. It has its own culture, uh, but they have principles and guidelines that they follow. Right. What do you do when there are tensions between qualitative and quantitative? That's when, you know, what you think about something doesn't match with the data or what your gut says doesn't match with the data. How do you sort of reconcile those? Yeah. You know, the beauty of having data and having it as a part of the equation and recognizing it's not going to be everything for you is recognizing that it's not going to be everything for you at different stages of a company or different stages of anything that you do. There's only a certain amount of data that you can use to make decisions, right? Bezos talks about what is the least amount of data that I need to make a decision. That's essentially what you want across the board. What is the least amount of data that you need to have in order to make a good decision? Um, we, we don't think about it too differently, right? So, you know, when people say, what kind of data do you gather on the team? Well, the data that I have is what they've built over the last two years. Let's measure it. And let's give the team the benefit of the doubt to see what, what do they need to add? What are the strengths and weaknesses of the team that we uh, need to have to interpret the data and help them move forward? Um, so there's no right or wrong answer, to be clear. Right? There are some cases where you have more data in the company. It's more explicit. You can understand where they're going. You can make better forecasts. The goal here and uh, why we take this approach and you know, why you guys have been asking about this for a while is that 
you know, the, the best data in the world is the data that sits in the company. Yeah. And the best way to assess it is by understanding how to take a look at the, uh, the data that exists there. And by continually doing it, you can build better and better heuristics of each company. It's not about taking outside data and having a perspective because that's pretty commoditized and it's lagging indicators. It's more, if you're an early stage company at a certain life cycle, what's the data that matters? Um, and so we have different frameworks for each stage. Just an Arjun Sethi. I uh, follow Arjun Sethi on Twitter. Uh, Tribe Cap is the firm. Work with them. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly excited to work with them. Uh, Arjun, this has been a fantastic episode. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 